Hello and welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines that make our community tick. And we got one headline we got to look deep behind today on our show and the gentleman who's here in the studio. Here's the headline. Tell me if you recognize it. Exonerated man released from prison. Now, that'd be something if we read that once in our lifetime. We say, oh, some guy went to prison. He, he didn't do the crime, but he's lost decades of his life. But at least he got released. Then you read it a second time. It's now gotten to the point we see that headline all the time. There are many people, it's, you can't keep track of them, who spent years, decades in prison. And then later, the government admits they made a mistake or they hid a mistake. They had the wrong guy. And then what happens next? That's what we're talking about today. What happens after that first headline? Exonerated man released from prison. And we say, boy, that's terrible he went. Boy, it's good he got released. How do, what happens with all these people now when they try to rebuild their lives? And what can we do about it? Vernon Horn, welcome to WNHHFM. Thank you, Paul, for having me. And I told you I was going to ask you to get so close to that mic, you're almost touching it. Yes, sir. We want to hear your voice nice and clear. So, uh, Vern, what I'm going to do is I wasn't going to interview you today about the crime that you spent 17, I mean, excuse me, was it 17 years? Yes, 17 years. You spent 17 years at that time or in half your life in prison for a crime that somebody else did. Yes. But I just want to tell our listeners what the crime was so then we can talk about what happened after that. Uh, Vern Horn was arrested and charged with murder along with two others. For a 1999 shooting at the Dixwell Deli, in which a customer was killed. And then it took all these years. He lived two blocks from the store. He used to go to hang out at the store. And the guy who admitted doing it got his own sentence reduced to a lot shorter than Vern's by saying that Vern was part of it, too. Vern was finally ordered freed by a judge in 2018 when he was 37 years old. And, uh, at, and, what happened was the police had hidden, not released records that show it couldn't have been Vern because the case was based on cell phone calls that they claimed were tracked to Vern. And there was evidence in the basement of a retired cop, I guess he might not have been retired at the time, who had not felt good about the prosecution, kept the records. There was a search warrant. I don't know if that word sounds familiar to you right now. And they went in her basement and found out that it couldn't have been Vern. And he still had a fight for years to get released. At the time, this is what Vern said, what took a place against me by this criminal justice system is a tragedy, a crime against humanity, and an assault against justice in the United States Constitution. Oh, it was 19 years. I hope this never happens to anyone else. Well, it does. 19 years of my life were stolen from me. My daughter went without her father. I hope this does not go in vain, but rather the folks who are part of this system will learn from this mistake to better the system. Vern, you said that in 2018. You were just released from prison. You had spent more than half your life in prison. You got freed. I want to ask you today what happened next. What was the first thing you did? You look pretty happy in those pictures, by the way. <laughs> oh, I was really happy. Thank you for saying that. I have to uh, give a shout-out to uh, Judge Meyer, who did the right thing in uh, helping facilitate. Jeffrey Meyer. Jeffrey Meyer. Well, he's a, he's a former, I think, legal aid lawyer. He's a, he's, a, he's a federal judge. So yes. a lot of times these cases get prosecuted by the state. We saw that with Scott Lewis and Darkest Henry, others, and then in, in Scott's case, it took a federal judge to do what state police and state judge would not do. Well, I mean, you know, federal judges, Paul, don't have a, a dog in the fight. So mm. uh, they can, uh, you know, shoot the arrow straight. 
and uh, that's what Judge uh, Jeffrey Meyer did. Thank, thank God for him, and uh, thank God for Barack Obama appointing him in 2014. <laughs> that it's funny how that thing. all then fits. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, uh, shout out to uh, him and uh, also State's Attorney uh, Patrick Griffin, who did the right thing. And his predecessor used to feel that you should have to prove that you're innocent, not prove that you're not guilty. Meaning that if the evidence against you was tainted, and that was the case in Scott's case, that the evidence was very tainted and the officer who planted the evidence against Scott Lewis was a corrupt cop who was involved in the drug trade and framing people. But the, the prosecutor before Pat Griffin used to say to me, you know, they're going to have to prove they were innocent because hmm. they work with the police. We generally believe we got the bad guys. Hmm. And then it took new people to look at it. But he changed his mind at the end. Scott Lewis had a co-defendant who the same prosecutor later said he served long enough. OK, this thing was messed up. Right. So we're kind of so you state prosecutor Pat Griffin, who succeeded this person, looked at your case and said, we screwed up the guy. Absolutely. And I, and, I, and I salute him for that. And, uh, you know, once. I got exonerated. It started being a floodgate uh, sort of, of exoneration, you know, as far as uh, the judicial system looking at wrongful convictions. and uh, Whole units got set up in some states and whole teams of lawyers devoted to. And again, um, I'm going to ask you, Vern, to just lean into the mic sure. if you don't mind. So what was the first thought when you got out of prison? What did you think when you saw the sunlight, when you came out, you saw your daughters? <laughs> it was, uh, I was elated. It was uh, one of the most, uh, beautifulest feelings I ever received. Uh, you know, I knew it was going to be a challenge. I knew I was going to face adversity, but it was it was a wonderful uh, feeling. Uh, my attorneys, the uh, Federal Defender's Office, Terrence Ward, and all of his great staff, they were there to support me. It, it was amazing. You know? So what did you do first after the cameras were no longer in your face and the crowds dispersed and you said goodbye to the lawyer. What, what was the first thing you did to do after out of prison? Well, the first thing I did was uh, I wanted to see my daughter. That was number one. And uh, my sisters, you know, my nieces, my nephew. And then I just wanted to, you know, sink this thing in because it seemed so unreal, you know. But uh, that was the first thing I wanted to do was see Isabella. You know, hold her in my arms, you know, because I always told her, uh, you know, I promise you, you know, daddy will, you know, prove this injustice. And it happened. So that was the first thing I wanted to do was be with her. Mm -hmm. Did you then have a family gathering? Did you go to a favorite place to eat? Did you go swimming? Did you go bowling? I mean, like I did. I did. I had an uh, investigator who also worked in my case by the name of Bob Moss, uh, he, uh, me, me and him, we did some things. We went out to eat, uh, went to my sister's home. You know, she, uh, she, uh, cooked a good meal. We sat, you know, gathered and talked. We cried. We laughed. You know, it was, uh. Did you have a favorite food you were looking forward to eating? I did. I did have a favorite food, but you know how the, uh, prison system is. Once you go in there, you start <laughs> not eating pork anymore. I wanted to come home and get some pork chops, but I stopped eating pork. So, you know, uh. My favorite meal was uh, spaghetti, and uh, my sister made me some spaghetti, and uh, I enjoyed it. Do you stop eating pork for some reason, or just because it wasn't in prison? I did stop eating pork. Uh, I converted to Islam. Oh, okay. You know, Jews don't eat pork either. Yeah, I know. I know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I know that. Yeah. So you converted, what, you converted to Islam in prison. How did that happen? Well, you know, uh, going there, uh, I felt like it gave me, uh, you know, some, some sort of solitude. Uh, you know, I went in when I was a kid. 
So Islam teaches you uh, masculinity, you know, it teaches you uh, discipline, you know, and uh, I was just attracted to that. You know, I wasn't attracted to the chess playing, the cars, you know, the, you know. The was it early in your incarceration or later that you converted? I converted, I believe, when I was 21. Oh, that's early. Yeah. Four yeah. years in. Yes. No, obviously, that's a story we've heard a lot about the public since Malcolm X because he was very influential when he converted. I don't know if it was in prison, but after he'd been arrested and he became a leading Muslim figure in the country, civil rights leader. And a lot of people read his, his uh, autobiography in prison and converted. There was a time in New Haven, I once wrote about this, where they would not allow the Malcolm X book to be given to prisoners while they're in prison. It was kind of interesting because Malcolm X had very tough things to say about the criminal justice system, but his entire record and the whole entire history of that book was it got people to stop committing crimes <laughs> and convert to Islam and be religious and like not hurt anybody, right? But for some reason, they didn't want that. They saw that as dangerous yeah. in the prison system. So how does it go about now? Are you allowed to have Where were you, in Chester? I was in every level four facility, and you're absolutely right. The security division uh, deter you know, certain books from getting in. Did you have the autobiography of Malcolm X? Uh, eventually, it's funny you say that because eventually it got denied when I first had it sent in to me. Uh, by the students in them uh, uh, at Yale, the security division shot it. I had to appeal it. They denied it. What was their reason? Uh, they saying that it was uh, uh, vulgar language. Uh, 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 what? Yeah, like criminal like, activity. Y- was there any vulgar language in prison by everybody? Come on, Paul. <laughs> you know, it's very transparent. But you know the saying, uh, you, you put it in a, if you want to hide something from a black man, put it in a book, right? Yeah. They'll never go to it. So, but so they really banned. So they didn't let you have the autobiography. Had you already converted by that point? I did. Okay, so I it did. wasn't that you need the book. I did, did you ever get the book? I did end up getting the book. It's quite a book. I did. It's very powerful, you know, and it uh yeah it helped change my life. So really when did, did you finally get it in? It sat in the security division, I believe, for thirty days. I had to peel it all the way to Weathersfield. And then Weatherfield. Oh, so you appealed it. There's a process if they say no to a book. Yes. If they say no, you got to appeal it. Then you so here's a, here's a advice. You know how I was telling you so many prisoners now have gotten screwed by the system. They all want politicians and us journalists to look at it. And we care a lot, but we don't get to everyone because there's so many. Right. One way you get our attention is if they don't let you get a book like that because that's like systemic, outrageous. Right. That's the kind of thing that you know, <laughs> find out about if you let us know that. Because I remember someone did that. I wrote about it years ago. Yeah. yeah. So then you did an appeal. There's an appeal process. Yes. And what did you say in the appeal? I basically told him in the appeal that uh, this is a book that I think uh, not only helped minorities and African Americans uh, further evolve themselves as a better human being, but it helps all people. And uh, I don't see any way that the uh, autobiography is sending hate crime, et cetera. But you hadn't read it yet, so you didn't know what was in it, right? Well, I did I did know what was in it because sometimes in prison you can get paperback uh, uh, copies of books. So, you know, you got your way of getting them. I just wanted the authentic version. Mm-hmm. So I did know about it. You mean like photocopies or something? Yeah, like mm-hmm. that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so what happened when you appealed it? Eventually, I won the appeal and they released the book. And they gave me the book. What did you think about that? You're 21 years old. You were someone who, I'm guessing at 21, was just starting to find out about some things in the world outside of the place where you grew up. And then at a young age, you're put in prison. What was it like to know that somebody said no to you in prison and you filed an appeal and you won the right to get a book? Well, what, did you learn any lesson from that? I did. 
I did, Paul. I learned that persistence always break the back of resistance. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, that's just, you know, how I, uh, how I live life. Because you know? then you did spend a lot of years after that appealing your own incarceration. Absolutely. All right. You're, talk- you're listening to Vernon Horn. He's one of the many men about wh- whom a headline was written, Exonerated Man Released from Prison. That happened in 2018, but a lot has happened since. And that's what we're here to talk about today. So you had your spaghetti dinner. You were happy. It was a beautiful moment. You're finally out of prison. You're with your daughter, Isabella. Was it all happy from then on? It wasn't. Uh, And it still isn't. Uh, You know, I'm grateful that I'm here. Uh, Since I've been here, uh, I haven't gotten any, you know, assistance. So, I mean, to answer your question... You know, it's bittersweet moments, you know. It's not easy. It gets heavy at times, you know. Uh, I had to fight for my freedom and to prove my innocence, and now I'm fighting another fight, you know, to get rewarded or compensated or get help, you know, from uh, this injustice that was perpetrated against me. So, you know, it gets heavy at times, but I'm I'm grateful that I'm here, you know. I'm grateful Mm -hmm. I'm with my daughter. I'm grateful I still got a chance, you know. So... Yeah. So I want to ask you about specifically. So you're out. Where did you go to live after you got out? So when I got out the lit, when I came home, uh, you know, I was staying with my sister for a short period of time. And, uh, you know, when you come out of prison, you know, you get a different culture. And you, you Do you get stuff? Do you get any money? Do you get any clothes? Anything like that? Do they say, do they just drop you off? Someone picks you up. Like if somebody's nobody to pick them up, where do they go? Well, they did with me. They did to me what they do to most inner city uh, kids, you know, they dropped me off instead of on Welly Avenue. They dropped me off in front of 235 Church Street and basically said, find your way. You know, it wasn't no help. It wasn't no voucher. It wasn't a call. Do you need mental health treatment? You know, do you need any assistance with clothing or shelter? Until this day, I never, I never received a call to obtain that, you know. So uh, it was never no help. So were you, did you have old clothes at your sister's house, or how did you have clothes? How did you have food? How did you have money? So uh, my uh, Yale students, who are some phenomenal people, there was four students, and they knew it was going to be hard for me, you know, after going to prison, you know, at the age of 17 and then, you know, being exonerated. Uh, so what they did was they did a GoFundMe uh, mm. page uh, in a, it raised over seventeen thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and uh, I was fortunate to uh, survive well for that. Yeah, we had the link on the independent. I remember when you got out. Yeah, yeah. So uh, thank you for that. So what did you do with that money? That's not. It's money. It's a lot of money. It's not a lot of money. Right. In other words, you're not gonna. It gives you definitely some help getting started. Right. It doesn't get your house. <laughs> get right. You like, right. So what did you do? Did you use that money to get a place to live? Did you go looking for a job? I did. I got the money. I. Uh, I, I, I helped my sister out, you know, uh, helped my daughter out, and uh, I did find a place to live. Was that in Trumbull, you said? No, that was in, uh, I was living in New Haven at the time. That was on State Street. Mm-hmm. And so you had some money to get an apartment to get some clothes and food and stuff. How long did it last, the money? It didn't last long. You know, you got to remember, I have a seven-year-old daughter, mm-hmm. you know, so, uh, you know, I was dispersing trying to share with the little I had. So it didn't last long, not at all. 
So did you go looking for a job? What did you do in terms of trying to get established? So I have, I, I have been looking for a job, you know. Um, I'm talking about that first stretch. Oh, the first stretch I did, but I had no skills. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I didn't know anything. You know, I didn't uh, know nothing uh, socially. Did you have a GED? Did you graduate high school? Or? I didn't. I'm, I'm going to get my GED now. I didn't get it when I was incarcerated. Mm-hmm. So when you went looking for jobs, what happened? What kind of jobs did you look for? Well, I, uh, I looked for jobs uh, at the, uh, I went to uh, Amazon. I uh, also went to Rosa Delora's office, asked them to help me out. Uh, I didn't know how to do a resume at the time, mm-hmm. so uh, my attorneys helped me with that, and I pushed that through, but it was to no avail, you know. Did you go apply to places and didn't get the jobs? I did. I did. How many places did you apply? Do you remember? I applied at uh, Amazon, and then I also applied at a, a trucking, a packing, and shipping company. Uh, I can't think of the name right now. And how did it feel? Like, emotionally, what was it like? Okay, you got the attention, you got released. People were saying, yay, you know, you hung in there, way to go, Vernon. You got all this chance now, and then the day after your, or the week after, the month after, reality hits. What was it like to go to those places and get turned down, or get your? How did you psych yourself up to keep plugging? It was very discouraging, you know. Uh, I started feeling insecure. I started feeling like no one cares about exonerees. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it was hard, you know. But I had my lawyers behind me. I had my family, you know, encouraging me, telling me to stay strong like they do now. Mm-hmm. And it's still hard, you know. But uh, I think what I'm hearing in between the lines, but tell me if I'm right, Vern, is that you said that it's not as simple as saying, here's some money, here's your freedom, which, of course, is important. You actually had supports. But I think what I heard from you, and tell me if I'm right, yes, is that coming out of prison after that experience of spending 19 years for something you didn't do before you had a chance to really get your life going, that you, um, it might take a little more to help someone get going. Absolutely. You need some wings to fly. Absolutely. And I think uh, anyone who has a soul and a heart and a conscience will agree with me. I mean, you don't let a man who was 17 years old when you perpetrated this crime against him by putting him in prison for something he didn't do, didn't release him, and don't give no sort of tools or mechanism for him to survive mm-hmm. in society. Uh, that is a crime against humanity. Uh, the taxpayers, you know, I mean, the people, I mean, we are, fabric, we are fabric of this society. So you shouldn't turn your head and say that this individual don't need help. And, you know, I want to say this, Paul, before I forget it, I'm speaking for me, you know, Vernon Horn. Uh, I do, you know, think that mental health is essential, you know, but where I come from, if you start talking mental health, you're soft or you're mushy. You're not the only one. Cops are that way. Firefighters. Yeah. Right. But you, you know, when you put a man in a cage for that long, you can't expect him to transition and think that he is completely sane. Mm -hmm. If you think that, then I don't know, you know, so I'm not saying that we're not able to function because if you look at the statistics, every exoneree here who has been released has been successful, you know, 
uh, without any help. And, you know, thank God for that. But, uh, yeah, someone should be questioning why there's no sort of tools or mechanism. So could you have used mental health help? Absolutely. Did you ask for it? Did you feel like you're not supposed to? Supposed well, to suck it up. I did. I have seeked it, and uh, I just haven't found the right person to communicate with. But I do deal with the person. She's a doctor. Her name is Lisa Pligliski, and she works with uh, you know people that you know that was incarcerated that comes home, and she has been very instrumental in helping me. You know, how did you find her? I found her through the Federal Defender's Office, mm -hmm. uh, Terrence Ward and them. Like I said, they uh, helped, you know, line certain things up for me when I was released. And she became one of the first people that I seen for my uh, health treatment. And she has been uh, she has been so. So does she treat you? Do you go talk to her about stuff? I do speak with her. I speak with her uh, periodically and, she, and it's very helpful. And she also helped me to see that there's nothing wrong with seeking mental health. It's just like if you're trying to get your triceps or your biceps. But is she not the therapist? Like you're looking for a therapist to go see regularly? Or? Absolutely. It's, it's, I, think it's, I think it's very essential that Exonery see, uh, uh, have mental health treatment. So we're talking to Vernon Horn about what it's like after the headline, after the attention, after the big moment when someone is let out of prison, exonerated of a crime. How do you get your life back together? So, Vern, tell me now about, it's been four years, right? Yeah. So you were in New Haven for a while. You're on State Street. You went for a job. You didn't get it. So what happened next? So, so next I, uh, you know, like I said, persistence. I just kept looking, figuring out I need funds. I need support. I need help. You know, I, I lost my mother and father when I was, uh, you know, a young kid. So my support is different from others. So I just kept knocking on the door. And uh, eventually... I found I also a uh, shout out to uh, another exonery by the name of Scott Lewis, uh, who's been on this radio show. He was good the guy, guy framed by the crooked cop. Absolutely. He's an exonery. Uh, he also helped me when I was exonerated. But he do. Uh, he gave me some funds to help me, uh, you know, get on my feet. Uh, he also gave me a vehicle. Uh, he gave was, you a car. Yes, absolutely. He gave me a vehicle. What kind of car? Uh, it was a Lexus IS 250. I never Whoa. forget it. It was uh, it was. <laughs> <laughs> you still have it? They, I don't have it. I don't have it. I ended up crashing it. It got totaled. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, but thank you for that, Scott. Yeah, shout out to Scott. He's another exonerate. He's very you know, good man. He helped me out. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, nothing has been... Uh, so tell me about... Because what happened over the years? Did you find a place to live? How did you pay the bills? Did you ever... Like, how did you live? I found... Oh, that's where I lost track uh, shouting out, Scott. Yeah, what happened was I found a loan company and, uh, you know, I asked these folks, you know, I explained to them my situation, told them I don't want to be a part of the prison industrial industrial complex system. I want to do the right thing. I'm trying to better myself. And uh, they agreed to give me a loan. And uh, that loan has been helping me. How much did they give you? Uh, I don't want to get into exactly mm -hmm. the numbers of what exactly they gave but me. But when was that? This was about maybe I'll say... About two and a half years ago, three years mm -hmm. ago. And what's the name of the place? Uh, it's it's called uh, Law Cash. Because, you know, you and I had an interesting conversation about this before we were on the air, and I think it kind of reflects different 
positions in life. Right. Because I'm thinking when nobody's going to give you a conventional loan or money, the companies who want to come in to give you money know you're in a vulnerable position. Right. So I'm guessing it's going to be very high interest and that they're going to have some way of clawing it all back, although I don't know what the collateral would have been. Oh, absolutely. So, <laughs> but you said, what else am I going to do? What else? Are, you got I mean, no money. I don't have no other alternative. You know, I had to do it. I mean, I, uh, it's definitely a did robbery. They, uh, but did they have any collateral put down? or Like, did you have to put up anything to get the money? Uh, no, no. So I how do they get their money back if you don't pay? That's the loss they take. I mean, that's the gamble they take, you know. And, uh, yeah, that's the gamble they take. But that's how exonerees, you know, are surviving now. Mm. And, 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 and it's not right. You know, yeah. uh, I believe that the legislator, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's their obligation to make sure, uh, Paul, that uh, that we're okay during this transition, yeah. you know. And uh, so how much do you, how much do they charge interest wise? I'm not for sure exactly. I got the paperwork. I believe it's uh, I think it's thirty percent. Oh my God! Yeah, it's really it's it's, it's really horrible, you know. It's, and it, how much have you paid any of it back yet? No, okay. no, I haven't. I haven't. I wow. Haven't. Yeah, I haven't. So what? Else, tell me what other help because I'm I'm looking at your story, Vern. I'm thinking, what can we? You know, first of all, we care about it because you're a human being. Yes. And also caring about other exonerees and how they can be helped. What would make a difference now? Like, how do you live? How do you use the loan to pay your rent now? I do. I uh, I uh, I get help, you know, from friends. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's But you I, have a roof over your head. You're not in a homeless shelter. I'm not homeless. No, I'm not. Thank God. Thank God for that. Thank God. And are you looking for work, or do you feel you need other help to get I to am the place look- where you can get to work? I am looking for help, uh, Paul. In fact, I uh, reached out to numerous uh, folks. I reached out to uh, Gary Whitfield uh, from the uh, Judiciary Committee to head. Uh, but that has been to no avail. Uh, I also... Uh, reached out to uh, Rosa Delora's office. Do you know the NAACP's One Million Jobs campaign? <laughs> that thing, we got, those, we got those jobs. We got that job. <laughs> I'm not a, we're not going to mention the NAACP here. You know, I like to shoot the arrow straight, and I'm not a big fan of them, them guys. I mean, I think that's for, uh, you know, the, the, the rich black folk. I don't... <laughs> but you I know mean, they have a campaign where they got all the big employers to promise to give ex-offenders jobs. Yeah, uh, I believe... That didn't go through, if I'm not mistaken. I thought that, in fact, I seen a, a individual when I was uh, moving through New Haven the other day who told me he got denied or was questioned about uh, being an ex-offender. So I thought that got denied. Hmm. I thought I'm not. I might could be misrepresented. Yeah. I'm not for sure. But okay. yeah, I. Uh, yeah. We're talking to Vern Horn. About the what happens after the headline exonerated man released from prison? What else should people know, Vern, about your experience? People should know that uh, you know I am a fabric of this community. Uh, it's essential that the taxpayer asks questions why I haven't been compensated, why there's not nothing intact to help exonerees, and not only exonerees. You know, people that's coming home for prison, period. I mean, I believe it was over $1.4 billion to the criminal justice system. And where's this money going? So, I mean, there's they, it definitely needs to be something intact, Paul, 
to uh, help us in some sort of uh, mechanisms. Because like I said, I'll say it over and over. I keep reiterating. I am a fabric of this community, you know, and I was done wrong. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing intact, nothing. I haven't got a call from one legislator. I haven't got a call from no one saying, you know, what is it that we can do to help you, you know, to, you know, put your life back together. It's as if they want me to be a part of uh, the prison industrial complex. Some people say when they get let out, there are no opportunities they consider going back to crime or something. I know that you'd done some minor offenses when you were a teenager. Did that ever cross your mind? You said, no way, no, I'm not going back to prison. No, no. In fact, uh, I always say uh, I'm not going to allow anyone to trick me uh, out of my freedom. You know, I endure too much, uh, you know, to allow that to take place. You know, and that's why, you know, I'm reaching out to people and I'm seeking help, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not afraid to ask for help, you know. And uh, Then you also do, like most people have been wrongly incarcerated, like Scott Lewis, they do file lawsuits for wrongful imprisonment. I guess you have one along with one of the others or not, or just on your own? Yeah. Against uh, the city in Haven. Yeah, I do have uh, a pending uh, case. What's the status of that? Uh, <laughs> uh, justice uh, delayed is justice yeah. denied, right? Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm still waiting. Uh, have they had any settlement talks? Do you have an attorney? Or? I do have attorneys. Uh, you know, uh, it hasn't been any uh, settlement talks. Because you will get a settlement. I'm just hoping that it's more than what you owe the loan company. <laughs> well, nothing is uh, for sure in this life, right? I mean, we never know what happened. I'm just fighting another fight. I had to fight the fight to prove my innocence. Now I'm fighting to be compensated. So we don't know what's going to happen. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm hoping, you know, that uh, something take place. But, you know, at this time, you know, we just waiting. But I do have pending litigation. Mm-hmm. So we're talking to Vern Horn about his experience since being in prison. One thing is that there, as we said, a lot of people have been exonerated. They've had different kinds of experiences, right? You got, uh, we talked about Johnny Jones who actually, he won like millions of dollars. And so everyone was asking him for money. He tried to help as many people as he could. He moved down South, opened his own business, was quite successful. Yes, he was. And then he got shot dead early in the yeah, morning. That was a sad story. That was sad. Yeah. He was a good man. He, uh, he helped a lot of people in his community. Uh, Your sister was telling me just that he had a hard time saying no to anyone, you know. Yeah, he like had a, a lot good of pressure heart. the money pours into you. Yeah, it does. About it. it does. It does. Johnny had a real uh, good heart, and that was a sad story because he changed a lot of folks' life uh, here in New like Haven, his, Connecticut. His, uh, I guess it was his niece was telling me that he paid for her car in college and stuff. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so then, but then he got Scott Lewis, who spent 18 years, I believe it was, proving his innocence when the FBI revealed that a crooked cop had framed him. It still took him, after that point, another 16 years till he got out. Because like you, he had to first go through the state process, and then he did habeas and federal. Um, he did succeed. He built a real estate business. He was able to help you with the car. Absolutely. What do you think explains why some people who have been had this traumatic experience, I guess this is a larger point about trauma in life. Yes. Sometimes the same two siblings are in the same household with trauma. And one of them is able to move forward despite what happened, and others really need those extra supports. What, what, what have you observed about the people in the ex-offender, and not the ex-offender, the exonerated circles who are, um, who are who kind of get steady in those who are struggling? Well, uh, good question, Paul. Uh, like I said, I believe 
mental health plays a big part. Uh, some folks got more support than others. Uh, also, uh, you know, not to uh, make this a uh, Scott Lewis topic, but Scott Lewis went in prison uh, when he was a little older, you know. So uh, when he got back out, you know, he was a little, you know, his transition was a little smoothly because he, you know, did things. He knew how to do resumes. He had jobs. You know, he was functioning in the community and moving. Right. He worked at the print shop. At exactly. So, uh, yeah, that was okay. But to answer your question, uh, everyone don't have adequate support. You know, and support plays a big role, you know. So what's the message you want society to get? I get the overall message. We can't just forget about people after we said, oh, sorry, you shouldn't have been locked up the last 17, 19 years. What specifically would you like to see in place? Mental, automatic mental health help, financial support, job training. I think that it should be job number one, mental health support. There should be a mechanism set up for exonerees. And not only just exonerees, anyone who's leaving prison, you know, you just don't drop them off on Welly Avenue and expect them to make it. So, well, you know about Project Moore. They have a lot of programs set up there. Do you right. think that's doing it? or? Like I said, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't like to put my foot on no one's neck. I just think that things need to be revamped. We need to look at who's doing these jobs, if they're adequate or not, you know, if they're uh, doing it to the best of their ability, not just appointing people in positions because I know him or she know him, but rather people that are really serious about change and just not about a paycheck, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, and Phil Blount writes in peace family. Thanks for listening. Phil Blount. I don't know if you know, Phil. Yes, yes. 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 That's Will. Yes. That's my brother. He just came home. He, uh, he did some time in prison when he was a young guy uh, that's my brother there. He's, uh, he's also a part of the, um, uh, transition stage. He's doing well. He's on his way of getting his license. So it sounds like you're really in touch with people. You aren't, how do, people, how do you find each other? Well, you know, when I was in prison, Paul, I, I wasn't. That's true. You met the, you met Scott Lewis in prison. Yeah. I met, I met, I, you know, I associated with, you know, the ones that matter. I wasn't, you know, like a sociable person, but that was my, that was one of what I consider, uh, my best friend in prison. Will. uh, and uh, he was a, he's a very good individual, but he's home now. It's funny. I didn't know he was tuning in. <laughs> so, uh, What's up, Will? Love you, bro. So, Keep striving. So you say number one is mental health support. Absolutely. And, and uh, number two would be job support or training or housing? Yes, training, uh, housing, but definitely mental health. You know what's interesting? It's sort of like the way that... Not, no amount of money could ever give you your life back, but the way that people can win lawsuits and settlements does help them get established if you end up prevailing. It does. I mean, but it's been a while, Ben. You've been out four years. I've been out, yes. I mean, it shows. I mean, look at Scott Lewis. Uh, look at Johnny Jones. Uh, look at Darkest Henry. Look at Sean Adams. Look at Carlito Ash. All of these folks who've been exonerated has been successful. Look at uh, my co-defendant, uh, Marquise Jackson. You How's know, he doing? He's doing good. He's doing wonderful. He's, uh, you know, he's working. He's trying to better himself as a man. Uh, you know, I'm pretty sure it's not easy, but he's doing it. And, you know, that's the thing. We're doing it. We're mm-hmm. doing it. Can't no one say that these guys was exonerated and uh, they went out here and came back to prison. And anyone who has a conscience and any sorts of intelligence will say, 
wow, how do they do it with no help? But we're still doing it. Mm-hmm. Shout out to all the exonerees. We're still doing it, you know? So, but someone has to question this, Paul. Mm-hmm. You know, someone has to say what's going on here. Someone has to knock. And I hate to say this, you know, uh, I'm not going to say no names, but the situation that happened in Cheshire, uh, and I empathize with, I think it was one of the most horrendous crimes that ever took place. Uh, oh, the Pettit family. The pet, yes, you mentioned this so we can open the door. But uh, he didn't know how it feel, felt to be a victim until that horrendous crime was perpetrated against him, which was totally disgusting. But when he shouted for justice and for some kind of compensation, he was given that immediately, you know. So, I mean, we all know it's an unfair race here, uh, but why do Vernon Horn have to continue to fight when he already fought to prove his innocence? So I'm fighting another fight. And it takes a toll on you mentally. You know, like I said, looks is deceiving. You know, it could be smoke and mirrors. I may look good, you know, but, uh, you know, it, it gets heavy. It gets heavy, Paul. You know, you do look good. Thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate that. I hope I hope my girlfriend says the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so before I let you go, Vern, let me talk about it now. So at Adult Basic Ed, how did that happen? When did you start doing that? So I reached out to... Uh, adult education because you know i want my gd or my high school diploma uh i just don't feel comfortable paul with having a daughter and telling her you know to get an education and i didn't have mine so that's another struggle we're looking for my transcripts no mm. one can find them uh, uh i had a few folks helping trying to help me where find did you, where did you go to school i went to school at transitional i went to uh Aces for a little while. Where did you grow up? Er, I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. But I mean, like, what part of town? I grew up in. Uh, I, I was born in uh, Franklin Street Projects, uh, and then from there, I just expanded. I just moved, but I literally grew up in Franklin Street Projects. That's where I was brought to from the hospital. And then you also said your parents died when you were young. Yes. My, how, how old were you? I was. Uh, I was nine when my father died. And I was 12 when my mother died. That's rough. Who brought you up? My sister. My sister, Tanisha. She older? Yeah, she's older. Beautiful girl. Uh, beautiful black queen. So you were like run the streets? Is that how you got arrested a couple of times? Or what was it? I was like your typical... That's uh, you tough know. growing up in the home. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I ran the street. I, you know, I was the regular, you know, ran around, did, you know, things, you know, and... That was that, and I was uh, a product of my environment. So, but now you're trying to get back into school, and before you can, you have to find your transcript? Yes. Well, they won't let you in the door until they can find that you went to ACES? Well, in order, f- in order for me to obtain my high school diploma, they need uh, the transcript. So I just decided not to go that route and just take the GED. So I start that uh, on September 5th. Oh, I'm sorry. What were you trying to get into without the GED? I was trying to get into the high school diploma program. Oh, and you can't get into that? Because they can't find my transcripts anywhere. I guess they were lost in the system somewhere. So uh, I just decided. So how do you get the, isn't that what the high school program is, to get your GED or no? Oh, no, that's to graduate high school. That's to get the high school diploma so where itself. You, so now you're in a GED program. Yes. So where? what is that? Is that the same place? That's at adult uh, regional education. Uh, 
that's uh that's a Dell yeah, Dell education. On 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 the boulevard. No, my I'm going to the one in Shelton, Connecticut. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. How's that going? It's going good. There's some great people there. Uh shout out to Miss Debbie. She uh she's the director. She's been very instrumental in helping me, you know, get this thing. And uh I'm gonna get it, you know. I'm I gonna, know you're gonna get it. I appreciate that, Paul. It means a lot. I'm gonna get it and I wanna you know, I wanna be a better human being, you know. Mm-hmm. I wanna do the right thing, you know. Well we're all rooting for you, Vern. I appreciate you so much, Paul. And meanwhile you came on to Dateline New Haven today because not just tell your story, but you're talking about exoneries in general. Yes, sir. So we're going to hope it's from your lips to God's ears that we're going to do a better job. I appreciate you so much for having me, Paul. I appreciate it. And I hope someone do hear this and do something about it. Well, step by step, we'll get there. Curl, (laughs) curl, walk, run, right? (laughs) Still working on the crawl, but we'll get further. (laughs) Vernon Horn, thanks for being on Dateline New Haven today. Thanks to Harry Droz for keeping the for working the controls. We're gonna take it out the Afro Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group C D A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day, all night, and all weekend long. WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. <laughs>